This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. A choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into a, an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. Thomas Gorenz, welcome to the show, man. You are also known as Paranoid American, the conspiracy occult comics. And, um, dude, you're fascinating. I've had you on for a live a couple years ago, I think, and I don't know, I have no reason why it took us this long. I think because you and I are just crushing it at life in general. Finally, our schedule's lined up to have you on, man. It's good to see you, brother. How are you? Well, we were beefing, too, but we squashed the beef. <laughs> we're happy to report the beef has been squashed. We've taken back all those weird things we were saying about each other, so we're, we're on awesome terms now. So They're going to believe you. Thank you for having you. me on. Water under the bridge, man. Let's, let's just never bring it up again. I love you. Uh, so, uh, all the ways to find him, of course, located down in the show description, your linkpop.com, which includes your Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, or X, or whatever the fuck they're calling it now. Um, dude, if you don't mind for the audience, uh, just let us know who you are, brother, that whole rigmarole. Yep. I mean, Paranoid American, my name is actually Thomas, Thomas Gorns. Uh, and I do comic books. I've been working in comic books for 15 plus years, self published. Although it's not all just rinky dink, I've got a pretty decent operation going. I started it while I was at Disney, had, you know, Disney illustrators and animators and voiceover artists working with me on a lot of the early stuff. Uh, I didn't, once I left Disney, I didn't have the budget to keep, you know, having those people work on stuff because it was one thing to do it during lunch and another thing to like have them do it after hours or, you know, out. So anyways, I just wanted to keep that train rolling. And here I am over a decade later and expanding into more and more stuff pretty much like every week or month everyone i know has tried to do an intervention say slow down you're you're doing too many things like focus on one thing at a time and they just don't know who i am like i can't i can't even focus on 10 things at a time the plates you spin are fascinating man so again all the ways to find him guys located down below highly recommend i've got your con i didn't grab it but i've got some stuff that you sent me man and it's amazing the the work that you do the type of you know subject matter that you focus on again the conspiracy and occult comics do you call it call it occult or oculate have you heard this argument or this conversation i, I haven't heard that i, I just say occult because it's always i've always heard it yeah, same Z's, but I heard it recently called Oculate, and it's because it's, you know, all about sight and an oculist and all of that kind of stuff, and now I can't unsee it that way. So anyway, just maybe well, um, another it, thing. It can get confusing because there's occultists, but there's also oculists. Oculists, and, right. And, and oculists was a secret society in the 1700s 
that based it was like kind of quasi masonic but they based all of their teachings and rituals around eyesight and they would all pretend to be i don't even they might have all been surgeons or like eye doctors but like all the rituals had to do with someone lost an eye and it's like oh no i'm never gonna see again it's also be like metaphorical for you know like seeing and enlightenment and stuff but yeah. yeah so so there are occult oculists as well so if you called it a oculist it would sound it would sound weird because then it's like i'm an oculist oculist yes it's it's just the way you pronounce it and the way you look at it right literally the way you look at it ironically having to do with eyes and do you think it's deeper maybe the third eye had anything to do with that we're thinking of the eye symbolism where they start covering one and everything maybe you know there's something to the apprehension of the pronunciation of a word so that it deviates our you know sight just a little bit i mean the, the third eye is and then, i mean it, it goes over so many different cultures the best way i've described it is kind of in masonic terms too but when you talk about light there's the visual light right but but you can also feel light like in a very real way. So if you go up to, you know, a candle that's burning, I mean, true, you're feeling the heat that's created from the combustion of, you know, the light, but it is light. So there is a physical property to light. There's a visual property to light. And then there's also maybe this third or fourth version. So that, that third eye is representative of like that third version of light. That's not the visible and it's not the physical that you can feel, but there's still a way that you can, sense that there's light around even if it's not your eyes and even if it's not your skin there's still like this extra feeling i think that's kind of maybe what people get at when they say third eye it's like being able to like you know have an eye to see it doesn't mean like your eyeballs it means like that other sensory perception that you have to kind of have it open uh because you can just easily have it closed and not be able to see it yeah it's like this clear indication of that there's something bigger going on but you need a certain type of vision not this limited literal ocular vision but maybe oculists have another vision that they're able to tap into and kind of maybe articulate um, and we've got that vision for sale on paranoidamerican.com black friday sale all enlightenment guaranteed to open your third eye money back guaranteed speaking of segues dude please tell us about some stuff that you got over there because i just love your shit it's amazing so what <laughs> how how adult can we get <laughs> we can get very you're not censored anywhere sir so the the very last comic that just wrapped up and people i think can still grab copies of it but it's called frazzle drip funhouse this is going to be a wild juxtaposition segue into the next one but frazzle drip funhouse is a love letter to 80s and 90s like slasher horror movies like the the cheesier and the bloodier and just the more absurdly over the top the better so we just turned that into a comic book and then hence the name frazzle drip funhouse it's essentially a cross between Five Nights at Freddy's and Pizzagate, right? So it takes place in the basement of a pizza, you know, arcade parlor, and it's run by these these Satanist elitists that are extracting adrenochrome from, you know, kidnapped children. And essentially, one of the animatronic animals comes to life because it gets a little bit of adrenochrome or whatever that gold the gold juice is right and they spill a little bit on it and it basically takes over and gets ultimate revenge against all the evildoers so it's very much like a, a story of vengeance and uh like a nice real resolution very good happy feel good story uh definitely not for kids at all there's very gruesome and graphic scenes and the other one we're working on is chaostwins.com which is a family friendly book that i'm doing with sam tripoli about two twin girls and a bunch of friendly 
uh, cryptid friends. Little Biggie is like the little Bigfoot version. Um, there's also Mathilda, who's like a moth girl, not a moth man. You know, shout out to, to all the little cryptids and the chupacabros and they take down nostalgia essentially the whole concept is that they're fighting back against weaponized nostalgia and that this this new generation of youth are the only ones that can sort of avoid it right they can be neo in the matrix of nostalgia because they don't have the same nostalgia as all the boomer parents have got like they're this new wave that talks in a new language that no one else understands exactly so those are the two big ones. And man, I've, I mean, we could spend four hours going over everything else that I got coming out. You, you just tell me when to stop. Please give us a few that you have coming out. And you have this uh, Hunter Biden uh, party kit or starter pack or whatever. Will you please tell us yeah, about I'll, this? I'll grab one in a second. We'll do like a okay. little like intervention or something. Do a show and tell, please. Yes, I would love that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, because I I, would, I just got everything all packed up. So we got I'll, I'll time, guys. Check check the uh, video version in the show description down there to see, um, of course, Thomas's handsome ass, and then uh, see the stuff that he's going to show us here. But again, guys, all the ways to find Tim YouTube and all located down below. Uh, so when you worked at Disney, was that the closest you've ever worked to Nazis, or is there another time? Uh, I mean, I was in the military too, so okay, got you. Yeah, you could probably make that argument even more so. <laughs> Thank you for and, your service. I grew up in Long Island, uh, and I learned recently that that was the last big holdout for Nazis in the U.S. There was a little section of Long Island that what literally had like Hitler Street and Himmler Boulevard and you know Mingle, um, you know <laughs> Avenue away. and stuff. And they all and they they kept those names even throughout World War II. Like they didn't even they didn't even repeal any of that stuff until the war was like way oh you know like okay there's a clear loser at least maybe not a winner there's a clear loser um and it wasn't the weimar republic you know reborn so but i yeah i think that that was probably the closest although i didn't know it at the time my parent my grandparents definitely weren't nazis they were italians um so if anything they were like you know fascists not socialists that's, that's not true. I love you, Grandma and Grandpa. You <laughs> Thank you, Nona. <laughs> so, sorry, uh, sorry, Nana and Pop Pop. I didn't mean that. <laughs> so, um, other than um, your grandparents and the Nazis, what else? You know, what, is that what got you interested in comics? Like, what what drove you to just be obsessed with comics? Like the same way I am, honestly. You and I share so many so many things with our uh, just love of tangible, fucking awesome visual. Uh, beautiful things. Uh, look again. I'm gonna I'm gonna post this. Uh, we were talking earlier about a book that I just got, and we were both just geeking out over the illustrations in this. I'm gonna give a shout out to Lost Lands, Forgotten Realms by Bob Bob Curran, illustrated by Ian Daniels. And look at that. It's just some dope shit wrapped around a book that's discovered the secret secret places that time forgot. And you and I love shit like this. Like, why do we love stuff like this? What was your first thing that was like, ah, I want that. I mean, even that book reminds me of X-Men in like the Savage Land, right? Where they go and there's pterodactyls yeah. flying around and they got to shoot them all down. I mean, I don't know how much of it was me liking comics as much as comics being marketed directly towards me, like our entire, because I mean, they had the Sega Genesis games and you'd go to Walmart or Kmart and it would all be X-Men shirts and you go to the arcade and it was all Ninja Turtles and X-Men arcade games and stuff. So you kind of had to actively ignore it to not get swept up in it but as soon as i saw those blades come out of wolverine's hands and put cyclops in his place for being that uppity snobby he was i was like okay i get this way more than i ever got the other comics that i read although 
even before that, man, the very first comic that I remember like looking forward to and going to the store and grabbing a copy, not because someone else told me to, because I liked it, it was called Ralph. Oh man, Ralph Snart, I think. And it was just, it was like a prototypical Bart Simpson. Like before Bart Simpson existed, it was this like snotty kid that would like go to hell and annoy the devil. Uh, or like would just, it was, it was very wild, man. It, it had some of that surrealism that I later saw in Sam Keith's Max. I don't know if you know the Max series, no. uh, but it, but it's where like this guy that perhaps has like a mental issue also sees that he's living in a completely different reality, but he's sort of like a warrior in this reality. But in the normal reality, he's probably just a guy that's, you know, completely out of it and homeless and, and unhelpable. But he's he's the opposite of that in this alternate reality that he lives in. And there's this girl that links the two because she'll show up in his wild reality. But then she also is like taking care of him in natural reality. Anyways, I, I love those sort of stories. And I I remember gravitating towards that and away from Superman, Batman, Aquaman. Like if it was blank man, like I didn't want to hear about it. You know what I mean? Like if it was Wolverine man, I probably wouldn't have liked it. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. I, I well, shout out Iceman. Iceman was cool. But... Iceman was all right. Yeah. <laughs> he was all right. What so I and and this is the thing, right? It's story. And I love that you brought up X-Men because that was my uh that's still one of my favorite things ever. I actually named the studio Cerebro because of that. It's what amplifies Charles Xavier's message, right? And so that this is woven into the fabric of us. And yes, it was marketed really, really well and really got in there, and I'm not gonna rule that out either. But at a at a point, you and I had, you know, a decision to move on and to like like adult shit, you know, and get into the real housewives of whatever in sports and talk about you know, the market and stuff like that. We didn't. You and I chose to retain our imagination. And not only that, you and I chose, uh, you know, occupations, let's say, or avenues of uh, our, our paths in life that are consumed with imagination and creation, creativity and story. So, you know, what is that? Do you, do you think that it was marketed so well or do you think that there's something deeper to that you were just destined to do something like this? I think some people gravitate towards wanting to just tell stories and in the right context, it's really successful and they make stories for everyone in the wrong context. They're just what like habitual liars. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, that's a, also kind of a person that is compels to tell stories constantly. So luckily I, I feel like I'm more in the former instead of the latter, but it's like, this is something that I would have to do no matter what. And, you know, the people in my immediate vicinity are probably sick of hearing all the weird, wacky ideas. And, you know, but once you put it on paper, it can go and it can find its tribe out there. Right. Sometimes the tribes not even within driving distance from me, but like the tribe is 100 percent out there. And, you know, some people end up seeing like what it's about. I don't know. It's it's really hard. Like if you were to go to a comic convention. Right a lot of the people there are going to see like the things that they're told are the cool things like all the tv shows and movies and trailers and like that marketing stuff and it's harder and harder for me to figure out where that line is like okay, here's a good litmus test right did you like he-man as a kid too um not really honestly i didn't really get into he-man because he-man was an example of the product existing first and then it was like okay make this appealing to kids oh. so that they watch it and they buy it it's not like he-man came packaged with a whole backstory and a whole hero cycle of atonement and all of that it was just <laughs> like 
nah, dude, like, you know, we'll make it and he'll have muscles and we'll make it with this kind of processing. Green tiger. Like, yeah. Oh, crap. You know, instead of just making commercials, this could be a TV show. Like, it'll be a commercial. It'll just be a really long commercial. You know what I mean? Like, and that kind of the same thing with G.I. Joe, you could say, is another really yep, good example where it was a product first. It was a doll you know, for your parents. And then it was like, okay, we need to hype up the, like the, the marketing for this guy. And it turns into a TV show. So anyway, that's one of my, my unofficial, uh, you know, very sort of subjective litmus test for not for like testing other people, but just like yourself of like, how much do you like Ninja Turtles versus He-Man? How much do you like X-Men versus, you know, GI Joe? Like the, the things that a hundred percent started with a product to get marketed towards you, versus the things that maybe started as stories got popular enough to warrant ancillary products that then got marketed to you so in that way it's like you get slipped a mickey but you wake up and it's like kind of a cool place that you woke up in and you enjoy being there as opposed to the you know the the bad version of that damn i mean what a breakdown and analysis and it's perfect it's a brilliant way that you look at it so again, it's not just about comics. I mean, there's psychology in this. It's it's fascinating. Uh, again, what you're able to gleam off of this. So, what is your um, what's your favorite project that you're looking forward to that you're working on right now? I definitely want to make sure that we talk about that. Uh, so I've I got two. Oh man, <laughs> I got I'll, I'll I'll do my top three. Okay. So the first one I've been working on like for four plus years, and finally I'm ready to start promoting it. And it's called Never a Straight Answer, NASA. It's about nice. Stanley Kubrick directing the moon landings. That one's gonna be so fun, but I'll 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 splurge more about that later because it's it's literally like it's ready to go. Um it, it wants to go, but I just haven't let it out of the the box yet because it it takes more. You can't just like let them out into the world. You have to kind of like set them up and make sure that they got a place to stay and, you know, friends to, to live with. So before you just like kick them out of the house. So that's one of them is NASA. The next one is called Mold. And it's about a it's a, based on a true story of a lunch lady that I knew in high school. But she has a sentient toenail fungus that connects her into a hollow earth kind of realm where mycelium and mushrooms kind of run all of reality and they convince her to go back into you know above ground and get revenge on these horrible little shits in the school uh in like really crazy and surreal ways so that one's called mold it's a lunch lady revenge tale a lot of revenge tales lately that's a like the coolest couple of sentences together i've ever heard in my life like think about like the imagination that that is and how you tap into that. But then you also tap into the Jules, Jules Verne's idea of these gigantic mushrooms down there in inner earth. So you like you're, you're tying all of the really cool Agarthian myth, mytholo- mythology and everything together. It's but in a, in such an awesome way by making the, you know, character a lunch lady. Like what a what a fascinating. And crass. It's very crass. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's a def- it's definitely not like highbrow whatsoever. And that's kind of how I like it. I like I like getting down in the dirt and calling things how they are and and then the the last one not the last one but the third one that i'll mention is called illuminati uh n-a-u-g-h-t-y and i'm still i'm still working on like the full title so that you can read it and know exactly what it what it is so right now i think the working title is uh illuminati occult uh erotica exposed i think that's maybe because then you kind of like understand maybe what it's about but it's it is a hun- over a hundred pages graphic novel of Ill- like graphically detailed um, erotic fiction that covers, for example, there's a rumor that 
Barbara Bush's mom, Pauline Pierce, might have had a little sexual escapade with Aleister Crowley at some point. Well, we imagine that, let's say that's true. Well, here's what that looks like in graphic detail with, you know, Aleister Crowley plowing Pauline Pierce and all their glory. There's another one about uh, Edward Kelly and John Dee, and Edward Kelly, like, banged John Dee's wife because he convinced them that the angel Uriel said that he needed to in order to get some pro so that one we also illustrated in full detail and there's six other ones wow dude again just love the approach you take on this because it's a no fucks it's so creative the i just uh, just love everything about this i can't brag on you enough so again guys uh not to brag on this guy enough but all the ways located down below to find him so uh let's talk about your adult occult oculate rather disney series that you have going on uh what what got that started obviously your ties to disney i'm, I'm curious about asking about stories by, about disney but i feel like you've been probably asked those enough so you don't have to no, share you, any of them I, i'm about. curious about your occult disney series but also you know anything weird at disney that just sort of put the hairs on end on you whenever you walk through that place or worked with this i guess more like practical it's less like i, I walked in and there was people sacrificing a baby yeah. right? i don't have that yeah. one but i do have one i, I walked into like the little control because i i worked you know behind the the scenes so i would like go into little control booths here and there and you, you wouldn't even guess it just looks like fake little facades but inside there are like you know like a like a vegas casino dudes on computers and cameras all over the place and there was this one time that I was just waiting for someone to finish their job because we were doing an art installation and I'm like watching what's going on. And the guys are in real time watching the line of people at the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. It's the one you go in a little bow and it floats around. Well, you could see like it alerting that they had like the line had gotten to some kind of a critical mass and that at the same time that this line is getting the critical mass, there's a restaurant that's like, you know, within walking distance like two minutes walking distance and they've got uh tortilla chips that are about to get too cold to serve so they basically start pumping like fajita uh smells and and like the sounds of sizzling not real fajitas by the way like sounds of sizzling into the park and then have someone go out and like announce that they're doing like half off or whatever and you just see in real time people literally peeling off of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride and going into this restaurant. But the way they did it was timed out because they know that the average time that someone would sit in that restaurant would be roughly about 40 minutes. And that if you were at the end of the line, you were basically gonna be waiting there for 40 minutes until you even got to the front anyways. And that by the time that that like lunch rush kind of died down, when they left the restaurant and they got back into line, they wouldn't have to wait as long as if they had stayed there. That like, and but all this stuff is down to a science and AI driven, and and it was not that anyone sat down and like they were smart enough. They saw all this going. It was just like the computer software was like, hey, here's this line of people with a little red line on it, and here's a little you know indicator over the restaurant with a green line on it, and all they had to do was like hit a button and it like connected all the pieces and like made all that stuff kind of happen. And then seeing it actually happen, it was like, whoa, dude, like, it was like, if you really could have some kind of mind control dial where you're just like, you know, go shop and you just crank it up, they kind of have that there, but it's because you're already at Disney, right? You've already spent money to be there. So you're kind of in the mood to spend anyways. You're probably gonna be hungry or thirsty at some point just from the physical activity. So it's not a hard sell. So all it takes is people to just kind of like nudge you or bump you. And I just wonder how many people in line realize that 
they didn't actually like it wasn't their own decision to be like you know what i'm not going to stand here anymore i'm kind of hungry let's go grab something to eat and come back they probably thought they were a genius like oh that worked out great can you believe that folks you know what i mean but really that was the disney guys like just making sure that that there weren't blockages you know because you don't want a whole bunch of people blocking a part of the park and then have this empty restaurant you want it all to kind of have activity going so like that that level of orchestration I don't think a single person could do that. That's like this corporate, uh, you know, like um, like a amalgamation, or I don't know, like a, like a enneagram or something. Yeah, or, yeah. <laughs> you know what? It's some crazy voodoo shit. It is. It is knowing how people operate, and it is a form of mind control. But is it? So, do you consider it morally, I guess, ethical? And what is what does that mean? You know, um, to so. sort of steer people in a in a right direct, you know, in that direction. I do think it's it. more, I mean, if, if you have to say yes or no to a question, I, I don't like to sit on the fence. So I'd say, yes, it's morally ethical, but asterisk, I would, I would turn it back into like a Socratic line of questioning to who it was asking that question. Right. So I would pose it and say, if you're born with charisma and you don't understand that, you, like how you do the charisma that you do, you're just naturally appealing and you just naturally pick up on social cues very easily. Right. Is it unethical that you're just naturally charismatic versus someone that is naturally uncharismatic, that is socially awkward, maybe even slightly on the spectrum? Like, is there is there an ethical good or bad in those two scenarios? And it's a beautiful thing you point out because then it's used as a weapon against you. Intelligence used as a weapon against you. And if you're the smarter one in your family, people put you, it's crabs in a bucket then. It's an interesting you point out here because it is psychological at any level. And we know that this place is fucking full of distractions, full of little bright lights and keys that are jingling to get your attention and shit. And so to utilize them, and that's why it was a question. It's just a philosophical one, honestly, because there is no, I don't think, right or yes or no to it. I think there is a yes and no. It's a yes and. Like a button, you just go straight to hell. Like a trap door opens up under. Wrong. (laughs) Wrong answer. But then they just pop back in line where they are here. You know, that's all hell is. It's the back of the line at Disney. Just where you were, you're just five minutes further in hell than you were. It's back of the line at Disney without taking that break to get a margarita. (laughs) But you can smell all the fucking chips and sizzle and hear it and shit. Yeah, Yeah, but you're fighting it. You're like, no, it's a it's a trap they're trying to lure me there i'm waiting like they are but also maybe you want some chips you just didn't realize it i don't know and i I think that's why it's ethical is because if you like if you're not good at it or if you don't do it instinctually then it's probably in your advantage to learn how to like actively apply charisma or like build rapport with intention right some people can just walk into a room start building rapport with everyone because of the it factor, whatever the hell that is. And then some people don't, but if that person sits down and reads a book and they formulaically go out in society and like, today I'm going to ask 50 people, you know, how their day is going just to, to break that feeling of, uh, you know, approaching and like the rejection. If you go through this systematically, almost like you're a little scientist out there experimenting, is that unethical just because you weren't born with all that? The same, like if, if you're an artist, right? And you're just right out the womb, which isn't a true thing, but let's say right out the womb, you just got like this artistic talent. You just got an eye for light and volume and gestalt versus someone that has to go to school and learn it. Is that person like unethical because they're like manipulating things unnaturally? Like it's a it's a really weird gray area to be in. So I, I really do think that social interaction and charisma and all that, it's kind of like an art form. Um, so people can use art form for good and bad, but as a whole, I would say it's art is ethical full stop. An outstanding answer. 
What a fucking outstanding answer. Because it is psychology, and it's just, uh, in, in one perspective, it's just offering an alternative to waiting in line for 40 minutes. And then also, you know, pairing it with an opportunity to get rid of some tortilla chips that are about to go out. You know, it's the same, it's win-win, and no one was really, no harm was done to it, but there was clear manipulation. But it's done all over the place. But again, like you said, you got free will here. You you have the ability to say, fuck that, I'm waiting in this in this line, and y'all go eat your chips. And then the dude comes back, stands right next to you with a full belly, and then you're just like, oh, what the fuck, you know? Yeah, and then and then you're mad, right? And now you're right. like, oh, it's this fuck isn't Disney. fair. Yeah. yeah. Which of <laughs> Oculus anyway. So tell me about your Oculus Disney series that you had, man. So what, what made you start drawing those connections? And just tell me a couple of your favorites. Uh, well, it kicked off because I was on Tinfoil Hat and we just did like an episode on Walt Disney himself and his history and Demo Lay and a bunch of really weird, like he was be, kind of being like white males or bri- like a good version of bribe. Uh, by the FBI to report on communists, but they were, anyways, th- that was where it all kicked off. And then from there, I did a show with Matt Comages, who does oral hygiene podcast. And we just did one on Fantasia in particular. And I, I, I jumped at the ability to do that because trying to cram like every Disney movie and every Disney conspiracy theory and story into one episode with sam and, and the crew right and johnny and xg it's like you can only you can only focus on so much and you can't do the entire disney library right in an hour and a half so we did fantasia and that one was so fun we were like you know what let's just go to the very first disney theatrical animation and watch them all in order start to end and that's kind of what occult disney's been is just started with fantasia where we kind of establish this theory that's not entirely mine for sure but that Fantasia itself is a true magical ritual that brings Disney into reality. And by the proof being that Disney is realer than any individual person is, it will live longer in any individual person. It's, it's you know, thought about more times by more people uh, more often than any other individual person. So it's a very real thing. And then every other movie leading up to that and afterwards is kind of a reconfirmation of all of this. So it's it's been a, it's such a fun and a great reason to go back and watch like, what am I going to watch Beauty and the Beast for? I don't, I don't have a daughter or anything. So what am I going to watch Beauty and the Beast for again, the classic? So now I got a reason to, to watch all these uh, in retrospect. That is awesome, especially the Atlantis one. Like, they had some really esoteric shit that they were doing, man. Uh, even, like, when you get to the stuff like Fern Gully and all those kind of things, right? I mean, it's going to be riddled with these patterns, with these um, symbols that are just throughout all of this stuff. And it's interesting, too, when you look at... <clears throat> there was one I saw about Winnie the Pooh and, um, shit, the Jungle Book kid, uh, the kid. And uh, it was the exact same animation that was used. And all they did was change the background and the character out. Do you think it's like that with templates in movies, but with the symbolism and messaging being offered, that it's templistic, if you will, uh, throughout the production? Yeah, I mean, because the, the template is grim fairy tales, essentially, or whatever that, that plot line is. And there's usually a very similar formula that they they produce with there's also just the natural storytelling formula that disney would apply to everything like for example like jungle book's a good example where he went and found the animators that were working on it and he basically asked them he was like has anyone here read the original jungle book no okay good don't because we're not doing that 
we're doing Walt Disney's Jungle Book. And it kind of kind of like supplants the original story in so many. And this is very, very typical of Disney. Another really good example outside of Jungle Book, uh, again, Beauty and the Beast, right? The original story is that Belle's dad was the king. And, and so now the ramifications of Belle, a princess, you know, going and, and procreating and combining forces with this beast, that's way different than her dad is like some sort of like half-assed inventor, kind of like the dad from, you know, Gremlins that like can't quite make the right stuff, but he's an inventor anyways. It changes the whole dynamic, but Disney does that nonstop. And I don't know if y'all would say like, I'll say the word neuter, but I don't know if that's the appropriate <laughs> one, but like if they kind of go through and neuter some of the stuff and take out like the really deep, deep symbolism and change it a little bit. But I also feel like, you know, that's if you're cooking for your baby, right? You like cut up their their mashed banana a little bit. You don't add any salt or sugar or anything uh, like when they don't have the palate that can kind of handle it. And I think that there's a level of that to Disney. And if you understand the source material and then you watch it, like they, they hit all the symbolism, right? They hit all the beats, but you wouldn't really pick up on any of it if you just saw the Disney version. If you just saw The Little Mermaid and didn't realize the real story of Little Mermaid wasn't about Ariel losing her voice and just falling in love with like a dude. It was that mermaids didn't have souls. And the only way that you could get your own soul and then live after you died was to find a human and fall in love with them or more specifically, they fall in love with you. And then you kind of get this human experience of a soul. And then they're able to sort of jump into this concept of reincarnation. But before that, uh, Ari, the original Hans Christian Anderson Ariel, if she died, then there's no soul left. So she just turns into fish food immediately. There's no continuity there whatsoever. So like, that's a very profane and a very important aspect of the story, right? It's not like, oh, he's hot. I want to marry him. You know, that was, that wasn't the whole, and that's kind of, you know, I'm simplifying it. That's the Disney version, but the original version, it, it even comes to at the end, he doesn't fall in love with her and her, her family and friends are like, kill him. If you kill him, then you know then he won't get his soul either or or like it was it was very dark right almost like all of the grim fairy tales were very dark and then they get neutered a little bit by disney um but i think that there's another i want to say like ulterior or evil motive but it's like this this story that is a little bit dark doesn't have the same amount of shelf life as if it's just a perpetually evergreen story that you can tell forever. If it's more Aesop fables and less Grimm's fairy tales, then it can live longer and it has more opportunity. Like, I don't know how many people want to go to Disney World where every ride is based on a story where, like, someone loses their soul or dies yeah. or comes to a violent end, right? But if everything always works out in the end, well, now everyone wants to buy all the T-shirts and the popcorn and, and all the tickets for stuff. So I think he was very prophetic in that way and again is it is his manipulation of those stories unethical or was it just the way he legitimately treated people which was unethical which is probably more that one damn because you always can go back and find the original right you can always go look that up but really people uh, i don't know how many people do i haven't read the original beauty and the beast i mean that's awesome that you know that and, and it's all of and the older the movies the more truer they were to some of that source material like pinocchio is a great freaking one but um santos and a bunch of people have talked on this about how pinocchio means the the, the pineal eye like the pine eye so pino okio um, 
Yeah, but, you can picture uh, Santo saying that. Pain oculo. Oculo. <laughs> I can't Love do him, it. Dude. He's great. <laughs> but like like those ones and also Snow White and the Seven Doors, which is the first kind of feature-length Disney movie. And that one is a Rosicrucian tale. It starts out on Snow White shouting into a well with water that's reflecting her face. She's looking into a, a reflecting well, which is very symbolic of you know folk magic in a way she yells at it and and what she says to it is you know i want this prince and like immediately the prince shows up right so this and then she runs away from the prince and this is one of my favorite little tidbits on this one and if you, if you watch it through the occult disney lens and not just the a viewer lens as a normal person you're like oh she got spooked by the guy because strong strong man and you know uh, meek woman and she wasn't ready for all this but really what she is scared of is she just proved to herself that she's magical as fuck like she yeah, just her power the room was spell out into a well and it immediately came true she's like holy shit everything i know is wrong and then has to like bill out on the situation to kind of come to, to terms with this and this is further reinforced because now she can speak to animals another very strong disney motif for almost every single protagonist has this ability to commune with nature in ways that other people in that same story don't right like like full-blown conversations or interpreting the language of the birds like so snow white we've got magical incantations into reflecting pools uh successful manifestation in the real world reading the languages of birds communing with nature um and then the the seven dwarves right this is this Rosicrucian concept of earth elementals, which are again these soulless beings. They don't they don't understand humanity or the human soul or ethics or any of that. They just know about the mundane world and the materialistic world. And that's why what they bring back to the surface are these gems, these gems that are hidden deep down in the darkness that humankind can't find by themselves. And they bring the gems back up to the surface and they exchange it with Snow White. You know, here's our gems in exchange for knowledge and and this human soul so again it's this story just like little mermaid that they took out but it's like snow white represents humanity and consciousness and enlightenment and these other you know these dwarves represent sort of like the natural chaos of earth and like that communion of the two is where like the magic you know all the disney magic kind of comes from but you don't you don't get that unless you read the source material but then you watch the movie and you're like oh cool and and in the movie the whole thing about um and like sleeping beauty is another good example sleeping beauty the whole payoff is that she gets woken up by the kiss from the prince right that wasn't even the headliner in the original book that was kind of added later on by disney well, it's creepy book. too like you don't kiss a sleeping person right when i mean in the 50s you did oh, it wasn't okay. that Right. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I think it's slip, weird. Slip a Mickey and everything's off the table. Oh, like, God. But I'm so, so, I mean, again, like, I guess the, the point of the whole cult Disney is showing that, yeah, the movie on its surface is, you know, kind of juvenile and kiddie, and it has some symbolism, but if you know the source material and you know what changed, that kind of makes all the difference to me. The Beauty and the Beast one is, like, one of the biggest ones for me, and then the Little Mermaid one is another big one. It'd be fascinating is if you did the real stories and did them, you know, the paranoid Americans uh, Beauty and the Beast, you know, instead of Disney's Beauty and the Beast. But you told the true story about it and then maybe even went a little bit further into the implications of said story, maybe even referring as a joke, breaking the fourth wall a little bit 
about the about the Disney version, you know, being such a horrible misinterpretation and maybe even sidebarring off a little bit. And like I said, I don't know, it would it would be an awesome project because you're so knowledgeable about this. And I'm hungry for this information, man. Like, I don't want to know what the fucking uh, whatever else is going on in the world right now. I want to talk to you about this. This is fascinating to me. Well, here is some of the nefarious part. If, if we get into the nefarious, because it is out there. Right? Yeah, let's go. And it's that now Disney owns nostalgia for all of these folk tales. So if, let's say that, that we did get together and we did a Snow White retelling or a Cinderella retelling. It's it's a sad reality, but no matter how you draw that Snow White, if it's not the Disney Snow White, it looks like a bootleg. You know what I mean? Like they own the branding of these stories that are essentially baked into our DNA. If you believe in like epigenetic or like Lamarckian, you know, pa- passing down knowledge genetically or through osmosis, but like they're able to kind of buy in on that stock of something that's going to live on way beyond any of us to the point where if I say Pinocchio, like what image do you get in your head? Are you getting the Disney image of Pinocchio or are you getting the original Italian newspaper satirist political activist or probably not that one? You know what I mean? <laughs> and, first, and we yeah. can go down the line with every single story that Disney has touched and they kind of own that image. So like, yeah, you can do a retelling like like Daily Wire. I think they're they're trying to do their own Snow White. Um, I think that kind of like addresses this. But now it's like Disney changed things. This is the maybe nefarious part, just a genius, right? But if I change the story of Little Mermaid, so now it's about she loses her voice and she wants to fall in love and it's all about true love and it's not about losing your soul and needing to get one from a human. Now, if you tell the real story, it feels like like the real one is the B version. That's the, the blood and honey B movie, right? But if you try to sort of like recycle or capitalize on the nostalgia people have seen from the original one now you might be up for a lawsuit because disney's like ah we shit like in that fork in the road we took a right and we saw that you took a right there too so how many lawyers do you got on your payroll because i got about ten thousand, you know Mm -hmm. so i think that that's the nefarious aspect is that now they can fight to keep their control over real estate in everybody's brain um and that's that i feel is the unethical area like if you've spent my entire life pushing images of you know ducktales and mickey and donald just all that like i didn't necessarily consent to all that and i couldn't protect myself from just the onslaught of programming and i embraced it and i shouldn't be persecuted for embracing that if i want to regurgitate that and take those things that you forced me to see and repurpose them and retell them and reuse them in my own way. I think that should be totally on the table. I don't think there should be any, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely in a minority when it comes to intellectual uh, property law, but I, I strongly, strongly feel that deep down to my core. Like I own He-Man just as much as anyone that aired it on TV or wrote it does. And I've got just as much right to Mickey Mouse as anyone at Disney does. Now, obviously I'm not going to publish mickey mouse flat out because i don't want to get sued over it but i i think ethically and morally and just as the natural order of things i i do i i feel like i own just as much of mickey mouse as anyone else does you know and it's interesting you say the apprehension is what it sounds like what is what's occurring here and so it sounds like the stories they chose disney chose to apprehend do you think that they were chosen on purpose to be squashed and to be 
neutered, as you said, which is, I think, a perfect description of it, um, because there's something real deep hidden within those specific stories. Like, I mean, you alluded to a few, but it seems that, do you feel that the stories they chose were to be neutered on purpose? Uh, I think by on purpose, but not from a nefarious standpoint, which might okay. be disappointing to anyone that's like, where's the conspiracy at? But it's, it's more like, if you're casting this net and you've got, you know, these 50 different stories that are from different time periods and cultures, I mean, a lot of it is Germanic, right? A lot of it come from Grimm, but, but even Grimm themselves were just a compilation of stories that they themselves collected from different regions. So it's not like there's this, this infinite coherency between all the different folk, you know, folk story tales. So then in order to give them all that Disney thing that like, that branding so when you go and see it and it feels disney it requires you to just chop off all those rough edges and remold it in a certain way that fits just like anything would do if, Mar if marvel tried to retell any of these stories like someone at some point is in the editing room cutting things off and suggesting changes right it happens on every single creative endeavor so disney turned that into a assembly line process in a way like he found a formula that worked and just kept applying it and when he was running the show it was just like no like we're we're telling this story in this way and he got into a lot of you know there there was a lot of animosity towards walt himself and the animators but he was kind of the biggest and only game in town so it was a very interesting dynamic there but he had you know absolute control like micromanaging levels of control over a lot of those early films why do you think that is? Do you think he was just a control freak or that there was something very specific like Kubrick where he was obsessive about his work, but to the degree where it had to be specific because he was sending very specific messages? Do you think that that's what Disney's obsession was or do you think he was just obsessed? Uh, a little bit of both. I don't know. If, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I don't know if I would put Disney on the same level of Kubrick, but also they were their own independent geniuses for sure. But Disney seemed way more like he was, he had a vision and no one else got his vision. They just didn't understand. And they, and it seemed like he was very frustrated that people would constantly be trying to talk him out of some wall. That doesn't make any sense. Wall, that would cost too much money. And he'd look around and be like, people have been saying that to me my entire life before I even knew, before I gave you the job and, and the property that you're standing on that's mine to tell me that this is crazy, right? Like that all I was doing were crazy things and it was working out. So I, I can imagine the frustration of someone being on this next level and just everyone being like, no, that doesn't make any sense. Stop what you're doing. Like slow down so we can understand. And like, imagine if Tesla, right? Yeah, Nikola Tesla yeah, had a whole bunch of about. groupies that were just like, Tesla, like, wait, you know, let us understand first before we tell you if that's a good or, and he's just like, fuck, like millions of, you know, light years ahead of them and what he's thinking of. So you I think, think that's why he worked alone, Tesla. Uh, I mean, I, I think that he was unbearable to be around as a person. Okay. He didn't like, he didn't like, uh, fat people. Like he was, he was like anti-fat. He was anti-body hair. Um, if like, if he saw just like stray pieces of hair somewhere, he'd like freak out over this kind of stuff. He had OCD. He would like walk around a building multiple times. He'd have to turn lights on and off. Like, like, like legit OCD. So like I'm Howard sure Hughes style. I mean, it's yeah. something like a, this obsessive genius. The money. Have, right. <laughs> Imagine Howard Hughes. It's always asking you for money. It's a, <laughs> it's a different Howard Hughes, right? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, but it's an interesting thing. This obsessive compulsiveness It's like almost 
challenge to operate in normal day to day, but they contribute so much, it seems, in this sense of the true mysteries and these amazing things that we seek here, just at a real deep level. So what do you think that is? Do you think that culture has been deliberately dumbed down uh, so that even brains and minds and souls like that that run around and appear on this realm are just so out there that we aren't capable of taking in their true genius or utilizing the gifts that they're giving us? Uh, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that. Uh, I don't know. I don't think that we're deliberately dumbed down to be dumbed down deliberately. I, I just think that the policies that get put in place that make things convenient in the short term um, turn out to be just horrible in the long term. But ego reigns and no one can ever admit that they made a horrible mistake that ruined like the education of the, the country in like short amounts of time. And we just end humans are so great at doubling down on stuff like that whole logical like the sunk cost fallacy that man that, that one's a hard one it feels so ingrained and it almost feels like all the logical fallacies they're all things that you'd be like yeah my gut tells me this you know my my gut feels like it's telling me this thing and it's like well like that's cool but that that's actually a logical fallacy that you might be falling into and that's why being informed on like this is the the study of like logic and grammar and rhetoric right like the logic is the logical fallacy aspect and once you know these things this is like no nlp or like we were talking about before is it bad to like weaponize charisma or you know like manipulate people uh well like if you know the rules at least now you can have some like taekwondo going on where maybe you're not going to kick somebody's ass, but you can probably see it coming and dodge it or redirect it or just know like, Oh, the way that that person's walking, um, they're looking for a fight. And the same way in this space, it's like, Oh, the way that they're phrasing things, the way that they're speaking, like they're looking for a fight or they're looking for this or that. So I think that like just understanding all that backstory, it gives you way more, I don't know, information to pick up on all those cues all the way down to watching Disney movies and reading the source material, right? Like all that extra context, it helps you see stuff coming from way, way more. So things don't kind of like catch you off guard. Beautiful. What, what are your thoughts, just shifting gears, speaking of a segue here, what are your thoughts on NASA? I'm, I'm curious about what you think is going on. Do you think, uh, have you weighed in or just even just your thoughts or curiosities about the flat earth, uh, round earth ball thing or realm earth or, you know, what the fuck NASA's role in all this is or what's your I beef think, with NASA? I um, think you would call it globetard. I think globetard. that's the, okay. <laughs> the official title. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not all in on flat earth. I know that's a lot disappointing to some people. I get people that are constantly trying to, uh, to convince me like oh just there just watch this video this will be the one that that'll be the one that does it i yeah. haven't seen it yet but i guess again like in the socratic annoying way of answering a question with a question but my my favorite one that i've been defaulting to until someone pokes a, a flaw in it but like what why does infinite land or an infinite plane make any more or less sense than an infinite space Right. So if we're on a ball that has a finite amount, but then you can just go out for infinity. Usually a lot of flat earthers are like, that doesn't make any sense. OK, so the alternate is that we're on a plane that doesn't have an edge. It just goes on for infinity. That feels even less or at least equally supernatural to me as any other explanation. So we're kind of right back where we started. So at that point, the, the flat earth versus round earth doesn't win in any logical conclusion. So like, what else do you want to appeal to me to? And I feel like there's uh, maybe speaking out of turn, this is my subjective bias, but there's a weird overlap between flat earth and very like religious 
people that that believe that you know god created me and put me on this domain and i own this domain because if this is all there is and it goes on forever then we kind of do get to become kings of all that there is but if the second you're like actually i'm just this tiny grain of sand if you zoom out like there's planets for infinity and i'm nothing that's a totally different perspective than i guess like a lot of classical religions where we're sort of you know centric very human centric uh universe that they all portray so there's some of that overlap that, that doesn't appeal to me either so that one hasn't sucked me in um and then there's another appeal that like everything you've ever been taught in school is wrong and i get that feel like i get the like rebellious version of that but i also feel like there's a justification where if someone had a rough time in school understandably or didn't do well in school or was frustrated because it made them feel lesser than and then they come out and they, they're presented with all these theories it's like hey guess what you know that 15 years you spent in school and hated every day and were always getting in trouble and they made you feel like an idiot well they were all idiots because dinosaurs aren't real and the earth is flat and copernicus didn't they, you know if, if you just say all this stuff and it's like Oh, well, of course, that's why I failed all my pop quizzes, because Copernicus didn't even exist. Like, I was smart all along. So, and I'm not, I'm, I'm being like a little bit facetious to make the point there, but that that's the other end of the extreme, right? So I, I feel like I, I haven't gotten that appeal either. Like, I do believe that history has lied to us, but I don't think it is so expansive that the shape of the planet and that NASA has set up holograms and that everything we're fed is a lie. Because then the other argument is, well, you know, NASA takes a picture, but it's really just computers that are making like things that you can't see and the things that you can see. Like, have you ever heard of the human eye? <laughs> like, kind of what the human eye does, right? It takes like light bouncing off of like different solid things of matter, and then based on the the frequencies of those reverberations, and our brain puts it together. So, I mean, like nothing is real. So, anyways, that's. NASA, I think, is a real company. They really send things out into space. Space is real. Some of the pictures they sent is real. But man, they probably are like a charity that spends 99% on administrative costs and like 1% on the thing that they're supposed to be doing. And then when you ask them to check for their receipts, they're like, oh, we, we taped over that. You know, yeah. that's what I think about NASA. They are they are outdated and, uh, you know, probably, if anything, just hemorrhaging money and being worse for space exploration than they originally were supposed to. And they have the monopoly on it pretty much. I mean, everything has to go through NASA. They say even all the foreign space agencies, it's still got NASA's name on it somewhere. That sticker's on that rocket. It's, it's or the, the government in some capacity. Like, yes. there's, I don't think there's anyone just setting up their own completely private. There was one that was supposed to be a space airport called um, Spaceport America, that was in Cruces, New Mexico, uh, right outside Truth or Consequences. Okay. And that was supposed to be where you would go if you were like SpaceX or Virgin Galactic and you want to go and do this. But even then, like you have to get the approval by the state and the federal government and you were do it. Hmm. And that's the question. Why is it so? And and this is like uh, the thing with me and the, the whole official story and everything is that it because it's the official story and because it's pushed so hard, it just makes the other so damn appealing. Because all the other stories they're telling us are just that stories. I find very little truth in what they're saying. Me personally, in my observation of what they're saying at large capacities. And then when you step back and you can say, well, if they're lying about that, why would they be telling you the truth only about this? But because the psychology of it is such a better apprehension in my mind 
than telling you flat out that that's pun intended flat out that there's an expansive place here and that you're in sort of a shit realm and yeah maybe you graduate whenever you die from here and you're sort of pulled up above the ice wall and they're like okay dude great job uh you were there now you're gonna go here and you're gonna be an octurian and you're gonna get a spaceship and shit what i think is interesting is all the things that you're gaslit against especially if we talk about like astrology just bring something into the mix people are gaslit against astrology oh don't ever use astrology it's it's bullshit it's hoodoo and whatever but it every sitting president has had an astrologer i found it very valuable in my life uh if you're and heads up to anybody out there if you're around 38 40 check where pluto is in your chart and see when it's about to square and take about two months out of your life and just fucking do nothing turn your phone off so you can't contact anyone and just go live your life somewhere else for a little bit. Those things are valuable, but they're gaslit against us. So again, the official stories and narratives wrapped up in this stuff, this is why we're never a straight answer. All the fucking symbolism wrapped up into it. It seems like there's so many dodgems going on with that, that and it's such an orchestration that that's where I find that where they put the most effort is where I think that they're faking the biggest. Does that make sense? It does. I don't, I mean, I... I guess my biggest apprehension with this is that I know how susceptible I am to be like, look at what they're doing over there. They're the bad ones. All the good guys are over here doing this. It's like this propensity to go and do that. And it's so easy to ignore options, you know, C, D, E, F, and G and all the other ones out there. And the whole like en enemy of my enemy is my friend mentality, which becomes really big. This one caught, I mean, this one was like, a strange one for me because i remember i watched alex jones in the late 90s early yeah. 2000s before he, he started yeah. on his ultimate warrior um sort of era right and there was this one show because and it was interesting because he was secular to begin with he wasn't like a bible thumper at all and he would even bring up a lot of the time like you know i'm not religious but i know people that are and i don't have anything like he would he would kind of like make these little claims and this one show this is early 2000s, maybe like 2002 or something. I'm, I'm just very hazy uh, in my military days. But I remember this show, and he basically said, you know, I think I'm going to become a Christian. And it's not necessarily because I, like, spoke to God or had some kind of, like, an epiphany. But it's just that all the research that I'm doing, this is Alex Jones talking on me, that all the research that I'm doing keeps pointing to these elites worshiping these, like, you know, evil demons and devils and summoning these like horrible entities. And there's just so consistent about all this that I'm finding, but you know, Bohemian Grove and Illuminati and like all of them, like skull and bones that if they believe in this so much, then maybe there's something to it. And if there's something to it, it's almost like the inverse Pascal's wager, right? Yep, it's, it's, yep. it's less of like, I might as well believe because I don't want to get spanked at the end for not believing. So I might as well just hedge my bet. This is like, damn, dude, like they are way into this. Maybe I should get some, some protection. Maybe I should pick up a Bible, get some holy water, some wooden stakes. I don't know. I, so I remember watching him say that on this one show. And like, that was this like cusp. Um, but I don't know if I've hit that yet. I, cause I remember even thinking at the time was like, I don't want like the reason that I become spiritual or follow some kind of thinking is just as a reactionary response. Spite, yeah. Other <laughs> thing, it feels Hegelian. It feels like a Hegelian yes, dialectic yes. where you've got this, like, you know, Bohemian Grove guy moving chess pieces around. It's like, ha you know, we had that, we had him repel from this side to go to this side. It's all going as planned. And this is something I've talked about on the show is this idea that really 
this whole orchestration of 2020 and all that was for this ascension, right? I don't necessarily feel this way anymore. It's for this ascension where it really like shook everybody up and it was taking too long because everybody was too pumped about the Real Housewives of whatever and doing all that shit. And they weren't looking at themselves and they weren't quitting drinking or, you know, doing the shadow work or anything. So the matrix or the system that operates this place that knew inevitably and could feel this uh, ascension occurring, but knew that it would take us to run it, sort of this, again, idea, um, that it would be then ushering us on by sort of this snap wake up rather than an ease into that we've had over the past however many decades that this allegedly transference to age of Aquarius, if again, you follow that sort of thinking goes. Now, to what you said about the inverse, and I completely agree with you about this, um, it's fascinating though, do, do you think it's possible that it's on such another level that the inverse itself is presented, that the inverse that's presented is so juxtaposed, but it's the same damn thing. We could see microcosms of this. Democrats, Republicans, we have give this analogy of the two wings of the same bird. They're fighting each other, but it's so that it's a whirlpool for your mind to just get stuck in and argue and throw little bullets from one side to the other and you never run out of ammunition in that whirlpool. It actually only gets bigger. You can scale this up to anything here and religion is absolutely one of these. So then the question is, is what's it all for? Like, what's all the dangling keys? What's all of this shit for? And to this, I'll ask you, have you looked into um, the work of like the, the Gnostics, the Cathars people, uh, Mark Passio, um, Howdy Mikowski, guys like that, uh, Tony Sayers that talk about sort of the other side of this, these concepts, again, going back to more of what the Cathars and um, Gnostics believed, which is that this is a fucking copy of a good realm. This isn't that. This is actual hell. You can see it all around you. And so therefore, any system here is of this Rex Mundi or this Demiurge. And all of it was created by Satan, essentially. And so even when you go, oh, no, I don't want to go to Bohemian Grove and you run to Jesus, Jesus is laughing his ass off because him and Satan hang out together. The same two, again, this idea of two wings of the same bird and it goes, it's scalable. So it's everything. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? And that there's like an energy loosh farm really is what it well that, i mean that's that's the ultimate thought is the energy loosh farm and uh and i just and remind me to tell you about vril housewives after okay. oh after awesome I, are you doing this the vril yeah. housewife okay I'm thank here, you yeah. <laughs> um but but to, to go to your question my favorite analogy is something that i i'm pretty sure her jordan maxwell say at some point and shout out to paraphrase him because i can't do him justice but he's talking about if you go to court and you see the two lawyers that are battling against each other. You know, you've got the, the prosecutor and defender. At the end of the day, when like when court's over, right? They see each other in a bar. Like they might have a drink with each other. There, there's a much better chance that they will have a drink with each other than the prosecutor would have a drink with someone he was, you know, um, acting on behalf of, or the defender, you know, having a drink with his client because they have almost nothing in common. They come from two different class systems like they're they couldn't be more different whereas the lawyers themselves are two peas in a pod so now extrapolate and he also describes this in terms of like a basketball team you've got two rival teams and they're at you know the final playoffs and after the game's over you know on the court they're rivals they're like arch enemies they need to defeat each other after the game's over and everyone's gotten their paychecks and everything are they going to go have a beer with each other more likely or are they going to go have a beer with some rando in the crowd that was like wearing their hat right they still have more in common with their fellow professional nba player than they do with you so like 
they're they're playing against each other, but they're still in the same game. And in that context, they're working together to stay in the game because they don't want to be in the audience. They want to be in the game. And and I think that's kind of the same thing when you say like the left and the right wing or the Democrats and Republicans, Democrats and Republicans, like if they were to ever become bipartisan and like just like cross the aisle, it would be when the general public like came to put their heads on pikes. They'd be like, OK, we're in this together, guys. You know, then it becomes the the the, the Congress and the senators versus the republic, essentially. Um, so I think those are the real classes. And that's the the words, the, the the wings of the bird isn't necessarily like in opposition, like, you know, like the a bird needs two wings in order to fly. So but they flap in unison for it to do so. Right. And then, yeah, there's there's some some cohesion between the two. Right. And that's the thing. The, the birds in on it, too. They're not real. They're not real anyway. And that's the thing, though. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? That it is the whole goddamn thing. Literally, pun intended, it's the whole goddamn thing because this isn't, this is a, not a real reality. You know what I mean? Do you, like, do you have that feeling of you where you look around and you say, hang on, everything to survive here, something has to die for every single creature here? Everything. And most of the time in a horrific way. Uh, not if you're lucky, but it's rare. So it, it's just interesting when you, apply this lens because then it it starts honestly to answer more questions that i have about this place more issues cognitively and i don't think i've been programmed uh into those it's some deep-seated like you know i use the analogy of the princess and the pea like if you've heard that story of course uh shit ton of mattresses how many mattresses exactly do you remember from the story i don't i don't remember if the, the number was actually shit ton, i think yeah uh, but was it was a lot and there's a little pee under the bed and the, under the bottom two mattresses, right? And that princess slept horribly that night, and that's the one he chose. And it's because of this, I think, attention to detail. Your inability to see the illusions here as comfort. You see, yeah, I'm on a shitload of mattresses, but there's a pee at the very bottom of it, and that tanks the entire experience. And so for me, again, when I look around at this and I see the two wings flapping and I see it as an energetic suck, and that's how I, I can't unsee it this way, is that I see like those that participate in that, that have these archons floating above them that are just sucking this fucking shit out of them because they're playing that game. They're a part of that system and structure. And it's interesting that, you know, again, we're gaslit into thinking that we're like the best thing out there, that we're top of the food chain and all that. But again, that seems in my mind a sense of false, a false sense of security whenever viewed again through this lens. And it seems like the best prison to have is where the prisoner doesn't know that they're in it. And so the fewer people that run around thinking, oh my God, I'm being fed on and all the things that I enjoy here that I've been, I've been programmed to enjoy. I don't actually enjoy them. I've been, you know, programmed into this. Um, it, it's just interesting. Again, when you look at it like that, um, what, what are your thoughts on it? Like that the whole goddamn thing is this demiurge copy and it's a hell realm and really our ultimate goal is to not be attached to anything here and get the fuck out. I think it makes some sense. I'm, I mean, I I don't know any of the names that you mentioned. All like the Gnostic, I'll send you some stuff, to researchers and stuff. Yeah, but I mean, I've I've read enough like intro to Gnostic texts and been on enough podcasts, I guess, that I get like a very vague idea that yeah, Sophia is this like embodied knowledge, and um, she kind of is like coerced into creating this extra reality through the Demiurge, and that the reason that we are flawed is because we come from a flawed creator. And that if we were, if we were actually created from a real God, you know, like the, the true pure God, Pinocchio. then no one would have any faults and nothing. But I mean, I don't believe in utopias either. So that, that sounds like a very utopian, like the inverse of 
the Gnosticism or, or like the part that they're explaining is why is not why isn't everything just absolutely perfect? Well, because in an absolutely perfect system, it's basically in complete stasis, right? It's just like uh, just like humming around at like Aum, right? Just it's just a 432 hertz frequency in perpetuity forever and no variation whatsoever. So I think that like I, ultimately, maybe this is the wrong way of hearing this, but we were asking is like, did Hitler have to exist? And I think that yeah, maybe he did have to exist at some point because you know the good with the bad, the setting, the ends of the spectrum, and all of this. Um, it's a it's a hard question to answer though, right? Because if there's if there is a demiurge or whatever you apply that in the practical way, not like the storybook way, but it, it explains something, explains why imperfection exists in absence of this explanation of a perfect God. So I think that's the answer they're trying to answer. Right. is like, if God's perfect, why are we not perfect? Like, why are we uh, with flaw? Didn't he see ahead of it? And it's because, oh, well, you weren't really created by God. You were kind of created by the knockoff God, the, the Daily Wire version of God. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the one that you got. And they got some quirks to them. Right. Like, have you ever heard Ben Shapiro talk? Like, there's there's some quirks. Overall, there's some consistency. But, you know, it's not 100 percent perfect. So, yeah, I'm calling uh, Ben Shapiro the Demiurge, I guess. I can hear that. That's awesome. And I'm not refuting you. I don't I don't know enough about the man to say so. So I'm not going to defend some something I don't know. Uh, we're just going to go with the side with the guests on this one. That's fine. It, it is, um, though, an interesting sort of wool to pull over the eyes. And I think that whenever I really step back from this idea and, and looked around, it's because of how many things out here are desperate for your attention. And whenever you talk about things like uh, Snow White, what it was was is really the attention they were getting. That's what they were sucking from her soul, right, in that sense. And same thing with these entities that have no what we would call soul or divine light. Something that, again, is this sort of elitist mindset anyway, which I agree. Like, I'm not uh, claiming that this is what's going on. I'm just saying that it's an interesting lens to view the world through whenever you start to consider it and then apply it around. You're just like, holy shit, okay. Um, I can, you know, cause you can think of, uh, transformations in your own life where you could say, man, I think I was possessed by something or that was, you know, people say it all the time. That wasn't me. Or I said something and that wasn't me. Um, I acted away and that wasn't me. You can do this when you black out. I know that's a chemical observation of that, but really like it's a mini sort of, uh, missing time experiment with yourself to where you get this blackout drunk, something takes over. You may call it the subconscious, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's an entity that rides you around and enjoys the ride. Because I've also thought, uh, you know, if this is some sort of realm or whatever this place is, if there is sort of a divine spark or something that's animating us, would you, do you, are you in the camp that that's sort of what's going on, that we are sort of occupied by some divine spark of some kind? Consciousness, yeah, I think if you so. call it. I mean, for lack of specific words, but yeah. Enough to continue. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the two questions that are very superficial, one is, why is there something rather than nothing? Right. That one's a really big one. So, so that, that the, whatever you want to call divine spark, but that is the reason why there is something rather than nothing. Why isn't it just infinite void and nothing moving around? Because, uh, you know, Occam's razor, right? That would probably be the simplest sort of path for reality, just that, that nothing exists because stuff existing is pretty complicated, way more complicated than the opposite of that, I think. Um, so that that's one aspect of it. And then the other one is just like, um, I guess, like interacting with other animals and nature and stuff. Like there's something more there than just, you know, bits and boops and and like factual information being exchanged. There's like some other level of experience that I think. So, yeah, that 
It's it's about as woo woo as I'll get on that particular subject, I guess. It's great, but then the question is: Is do you think that our physical bodies, then you know, because a lot of people say this, that kind of attach attached to this idea that you're not your body, you're just this is a vehicle that you're driving around. Would you say that this is temporary in that way, then that your consciousness continues on? So basically, this is just sort of a lender to do what you want to do while you're here. Maybe there's a good, this is, I can't remember the book. I think it was called the Cartesian voyage that I did with uh, Juan on a cult book club, but they're trying to summarize how Rene Descartes was coming to his conclusion that the soul lives in the pineal gland. And I'm not going to go because it's like a long ass book and they got all these different arguments. But the coolest part that I remembered was that he's making this argument for that. This like your soul can't be in your arm. Um, and if it's not in your left arm, then it can't be in your right arm. And if it can't be in your arms and it can't be in your legs. And, and why do you say that the soul can't be in your arm? Well, because you could lose both of your arms and still be at your full soulful capacity. Right. Um, and then you might have like the ghost limb thing going on, but for sure, like the soul wasn't in your arm because you continue to be you without the arms. So apply that to pretty much every different appendix. You cut your ears off, cut your nose off. You could cut almost every part of your body off, um, except for like your vital organs, right? And your head. And then you'd start running into problems with the rest of the experiment. But um, it would be hard to track down exactly where that's at. So as he's going through the the deep, deep explanations about why your soul's not in your arm, he has this example of think of a blind man and a blind man has a stick or a cane right and after he uses it enough like that becomes part of his sense so like for me and you like if i if i touch the microphone i feel it on my fingertip and that's like the the loop that i've created in my reality is that when i touch something i figure out what that is for someone that's blind that cane is their fingertips so when they tap grass and they taps wet mud or they tap something that's you know hard like that, that, um, that frequency, that vibration that's traveling up, it's, they're feeling it just as acute as you might feel like the tip of a needle or something, right? Like they, they feel all that texture and all that information. Now, if you take that cane away, now I'm, I'm holding it, right? Is your soul in this cane? It can be like, there's no way that your soul is in that cane. So just if you, if you follow that to its, its logical sort of conclusion, then the soul hat in renated Descartes' mind could only be in the pineal gland because it was like dead center in the brain. Um, so that if you were to cut off every other, everything from the head down, right. And then it couldn't be in like the left side of your brain or the right side of your brain, because that would be imbalanced. So he, he basically said it has to be in this epicenter and that's where it sticks out. So it, the, it, the answer that I was getting to though, is that that cane, right. That cane doesn't have the soul in it, but it becomes an appendage of you, just like the rest of your body follows suit, right? So everything that's part of your physical body is no more than a cane that you're using to tap around and stuff. So it'd probably be very attached, just like a blind person probably be really attached to their cane. If you took it away from them, they'd feel like they were blind all over again, lost part of their body. Um, but that's not really the case. You know... So what if somebody did that experiment? We talk about this brain in a vat idea. And what if a technology or a creature or something like that took over some sentient beings, cut their brain down to pineal glands and is storing them in some device and, you know, simulating this reality. And maybe that's really Matrix. what's a simulation. Yeah. yeah, there are a million other movies that are on that. A million other. Dark City is bad. I know you've seen that, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Dark, I feel like that is like a, in my mind, it's a conversation ender, not a starter. Um, <laughs> 
just because it's like, dude, what if we're all living in a simulation? Right. Like you can kind of just mic drop and walk out of the room, right? Because anything yeah. you say is just part of the simulation. So I don't even have to sit here for it. Like I I gave you the truth. We're done here. Uh so that's that's why I don't like the solipsism argument as much, but I I think it is probably one of the more realistic ones, is that like, yeah, we're all just little brains. I mean, if you think about it, we really are. Like, I am a brain that's just floating around in space, right? Everything else is like a like an input device, right? These are my my uh, like my ocular sensory input devices and my olfactory sensory input device. But you can take all of those input devices away from somebody, and you still have a a, a somebody in there. So it's it's weird that like how how would you do that experiment right like we're gonna just slowly remove you bit by bit like ship of Theseus and tell us when you stop being you. I don't okay? think it's on a voluntary system. It's probably not on <laughs> no, voluntary it be basis. a voluntary yeah. system. <laughs> it's if it was voluntary, it'd be who wants to go first? Oh no, you you have to do it. But which one of you wants to go first? You know, and and that's why uh, also I was curious to ask then on that same line of questioning is then do you feel that. Uh, what drives us, this divine spark, is the only thing out there, or that these vehicles that we're just temporarily using that can be, you know, maybe we're located, whatever our, is driving this thing, our consciousness, we'll just call it that, whatever consciousness this is that we think is what we call human, uh, is just driving this body around, but also there's many other things that can tap into a human body with their own agenda that come from somewhere else. Do you think that that's possible? Hmm, I don't think so. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, I don't believe in ghosts or demons or angels per se, so no, I don't think so. Perfect. All right, well, uh, we were going to crap it there anyway, but uh, please, if you don't mind, sir, send us off with something you're excited about and we'll get you up every morning. Oh, oh I mentioned my my Real Housewives, which is yes, right now please. the conceptual stage. Uh, I, I'll spill it. If someone wants to steal it, I don't care. Go for it. It's not easy. It takes a long time to make a comic. So, so the, the concept is called real housewives v-r-i-l and it's basically that reality show is just a loosh farm and that they know that it's a loosh farm and that's exactly what they're doing so the real housewives is a comic that takes place sort of behind the scenes of the real housewives of bohemian grove so all the husbands go off to do their their summer encampment and it's just like the the wives that are left over to be caddy but they're actually summoning real real and having them come into our reality and the main star that gets invited to the show that we follow around as a protagonist, she's new to this world, kind of uncovers it, tries to reveal it on live television and then finds out some even crazier reality that's like beyond just the real running things. So that's that's Ooh, just yeah. an idea that I've been cooking up. I'm, I'm hot to trot on it, but like I'll say it now and it'll be done in maybe like three years from now. So <laughs> it's brilliant. I love that even more. It kind of made me think of, I don't know if you're going this direction of it, but it made me think more of Bohemian Grove is just sort of like a summer camp for their husbands to get them out of the house so that they can do the real magic. These women, oh, witchy goddesses. Is that really what it is? Yeah, 100%. They're yeah, like, I mean, boys. <laughs> Because they're the ones that are actually running that's the what, show. That's what yeah. I got from it. Dude, that's badass. I fucking love this. I can't wait. All right, well, uh, we will look forward to that. And in the meantime, guys, check out his YouTube. Uh, definitely check out the Occult Disney series. Everything you do is awesome. We're in love with you, brother. So, <clears throat> excuse me, come back any damn time. And um, just thanks. Thanks again for this, dude. Thank you, man. It's always awesome talking to you. I appreciate it.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.